0: Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Go behind the wheel, under the hood, and beyond with Car Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hi, everybody. Welcome to Car Stuff. I'm Scott Bensley. And I'm Ben Boland. And we've got a strange tale today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's mm-hmm. a weird, weird piece of automotive history. We're even going to need some uh, strange tale music in the beginning here. That's probably true. And uh, we're going to talk about a vehicle that is called the Dale. Now, if you don't know about the Dale... Hang on, because there's a a big twist that's coming somewhere near the middle of this story that you probably didn't expect. Maybe, maybe not. If you know about it, you know what's coming. But either way, this is about an American-made car that, that, uh, well, I guess you could say it's an American-made car that never really was. Right. Um, It's a tale of deception in more ways than one, really. Yeah. Uh, There's a lot of deception going on in this whole thing. And again, we already mentioned the twist that's coming up, so... Um, th- there's a lot to this story, and it's uh, it's just a fascinating bit of automotive history to me. Yeah.
2: So, cast your minds back to the glamorous, wild world of
1: 1974. Yeah, we go uh, we go way back. That's almost almost 40 years. Well, that is 40 years ago at this point, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So, uh, it's a long, long time ago. And this is the formation of a company called the Twentieth Century Motor Car Corporation. And they had one vehicle that they were promoting at the time and it was called the Dale. Mm. And this Dale vehicle was a um, it was a revolutionary vehicle at the time, or said to be a revolutionary vehicle at the time. Mm. you got to remember the time frame for this whole thing now. It was the the uh, right the, out of
2: the fuel embargo. The
1: early nineteen seventies, exactly right. The fuel embargo was going on. Now it promised a lot of things, and there were there were a lot of different um car designs that were coming out at this time now. A lot of ideas for uh, fuel efficiency for saving, saving fuel. So there were bodies made of carbon fiber even back then. There were bodies that were fitted with wings. Uh, some that floated on water. There were three wheelers. There were six wheelers. Yep. They went back to steam engines for a while. Jet turbines were, were something that they were kind of playing around with. If you remember that, we talked about, um, the Ford vehicle that was going to go with nuclear power and, um, there was at least one Developer that decided that the three wheel option was the way to go.
2: Ah, yes. That was a gentleman named Dale
1: Clift. Dale Clift. Now, this is, uh, the guy that, uh, the Dale car is eventually named after. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, he has, he plays a, a role in this, but not as much of a role as you may think. Um, early on, we'll talk about him a, quite a bit here, but he had this idea. He said, I want to make this, th- this three wheel vehicle. Um, he, again, he's a Southern California inventor. Yeah. And, he,
2: uh, he he's working for, um, some pretty large scale electronic military contracts. Exactly.
1: But he likes to also kind of mess around with things in his in his uh, you know, side times, I guess, you know, his time off. Um and he was kind of mechanically messing around with a lot of different personal projects. I think he he built a uh, bicycle motor and he built a device that was designed to blow insulation into an existing wall. Mm-hmm. Um he he also played around with um motorcycle engines and things like that, you know, kind of mechanical things and and um commuting vehicles that was one of his ideas was uh how to create a three-wheel commuting vehicle that was powered by a motorcycle engine right and yep. he developed a uh um, a vehicle with um well he built this you know i don't know if you want to say that he, he built it with a friend maybe from uh the company that he's working with Ooh. and I, I don't want to really give too much away here at this point but he built it in his garage in, in, in suburban los angeles And it was the three wheel design. It was, uh, if I can just describe it this way, it was, this is the way it was written in the place where we're getting this, this book or this information from, this story from. Oh yeah. And this could be familiar to our listeners. Yeah. That's right. It's called, the book is called history's greatest automotive mysteries, myths and rumors revealed. And we've used this several times in this Mm -hmm. podcast, uh, to, you know, glean some stories from, uh, some of the stranger, uh, stranger parts of, of, our past, I guess, in, in automotive past.
2: Yeah, this is kind of like a, a a collection of Ripley's Believe It or Not tales specifically about cars. Yeah, it's
1: like, think of like a, like a Snope story only expanded. You know, there's yeah. a lot more information here, so we're going to kind of read through this. And there's there's parts of this article that we'll read. And, uh, and, and one part that I want to read here is about this vehicle. Now, right. the vehicle itself, they say that the frame consisted of, of half-inch electrical conduit with the joints that were brazed together, so the mechanical components came from a motor- from the motorcycle world. Mm-hmm. The engine, for example, was a, a robust 305 cc twin from a Honda CB77 Superhawk. And while there were two front wheels, they were suspended with motorcycle-style forks. So the whole thing was covered and the whole thing was covered with naga hide. In a metal flake maroon. <laughs> which is crazy. Now, Naugahyde, you know, that's like plastic leather, really. That's yeah. fake leather. Yeah. And, uh, so that's the exterior of this. And we talked about that, that an obscure car that was covered with something like this, but it had foam, I think, on the outside. Yeah, right? yeah. A similar type covering. Oh, that was yeah. the, um, uh, Safari car? That was it, right? Yeah, in our, in our, um, obscure car episode. Yeah, exactly. Now he, he completes this three-wheel prototype vehicle, which, which, they say it actually looked pretty good from the outside. Uh, he completed it in 1973, so he's working on this early on. And, um, he, he used it to drive around town. He used to get around town in this thing. He would go back and forth to work and, you know, he had it licensed for street
2: use. Right. He had it registered as a motorcycle. Now, of course, it wasn't perfect. It had a lot of the disadvantages that you see in cottage industry garage built vehicles. Mm-hmm. So, Carbon monoxide could leak into it. Um, oh, and it was a two-seater
1: too. Exactly. Yeah. That. yeah, that's pretty good. So two-seater. So he would sometimes take a friend, uh, with yeah. him to work or, you know, just, just to run errands around town and, sure. uh, people, it, it garnered a lot of attention. In fact, it, it got attention of, um, uh, local press eventually. And I'll tell you about that in just one second, but I also want to say that, you know, that along with, you know, everything that it was doing right, it also had a lot of flaws. Now, right. some of these flaws, I guess, and, and these are typical of somebody, you know, something that someone would build in their garage. Right, right, right. Like some, you said. Yeah. I mean, it would leak carbon monoxide yeah. into the cockpit, which is a bad problem to have. I'll tell you that right. if you're going on a long trip, um, you know, the stopping power from the brakes was really, really negligible because Tiny tires, uh, cable driven brakes. Right. You can imagine what that was like.
2: And and this might surprise some people who I I don't know if you're a fan of Naugahyde or something, but it turns out that if this thing ever got in a
1: crash, Dale was screwed. <laughs> yeah, if you're driving a Naugahyde car <laughs> Uh, I don't think you're going to want to hit too many other vehicles or walls or anything like that, or really anything at all. But
2: again, this is the kind of car that we have talked about before, the kind of vehicle, rather. Mm -hmm. It's a small, light vehicle with a kind of short range, at least the way he was building it, that is meant for not highway driving. It's meant for commuting inside a city.
1: And that's exactly what he was doing when finally, you know, some of the the local press, I guess, kind of got wind of what was going on. And they saw him around town and they said, hey, let's make a great story. Let's talk to him. Yeah. So they actually interviewed him and they talked to him about, you know, what he was doing and, and got a story and everything. That was all kind of interesting. But then that gets more attention because more people see this. And through that attention is where possibly this may be the turning point in the story. This is the twist that I was going to tell you about, but this is where a meeting happened that I think was a setup right from the very beginning. And a lot of people, I think, think looking back that this mm-hmm. was a setup, it was a planned meeting. But um in 1974, while he was eating dinner in a restaurant on Ventura Boulevard, he was approached by a stranger who told him who knew uh, that, that that stranger said that, I know somebody who might be willing to put this three-wheel vehicle they have into production.
2: Right, which at the time, some people were saying he called it the commuter cycle. Yeah. Uh, So a lot of this story, it's time to introduce this other guy, too. A lot of this story comes from a close friend of Dale's named Richard Smith. Mm -hmm. And so uh, Richard Smith wrote a book about this called The Dale Automobile, An American Dream. And a lot of our accounts are coming via Smith. So Smith is one of the people who believes that this quote-unquote chance meeting was planned from the beginning.
1: Yeah, and there's a uh, there's good reason for that later on, as we'll find out. I mean, looking back, you know, they they try to piece this all together, really. So, who um, is this stranger? Well, the stranger that uh, that is supposedly able to put this thing into production is a woman by the name of Geraldine Elizabeth Carmichael. Now, I think her friends called her Liz or Liz Carmichael, and we'll just call her Liz Carmichael. How sure, about that? That sounds good. Uh, but her full name is Geraldine Elizabeth Carmichael, mm-hmm. and the way she's described here in this article is that she was a huge woman. Um, anywhere from six feet tall and 175 pounds to somewhere around six feet, two inches tall and 225 pounds, depending on who who you talk to.
2: Right. And depending on who you talk to, again, uh, she was either an Indiana farm girl who worked on tractors, a former stock car racer, uh, entrepreneur from the University of Miami, a mechanical engineer from Ohio State, the widow of a NASA structural engineer. Mm-hmm. Or the owner of a car mod company, former owner, uh customizer.
1: Yep. Patent holder. She said she she had patents. There's there's this long list. She had this uh self skinning foam apparently that you know she was a, a patent holder on. And uh, you know, again, what what stands out to you, Ben, about this right away? I mean this sounds like a charlatan, doesn't it? It sounds like somebody who's just breezing into town. It's like one of you know, the one of the people selling snake oil, doesn't it?
2: Well, you know it does. I'm just gonna, in the interest of being fair, Scott, I'm playing devil's advocate. I'll go ahead and say that I guess it's possible for
1: one person to have done all these things. I I guess so, but my gosh, Ben, this is a this is quite a resume, really. Yeah, you this think is a life it. well lived. Exactly. Now, now she's saying, you know, Liz is saying. I can, I can get this car into production for you and you know, mm-hmm. and she wasn't telling everybody all of those things all at once. She right. was just saying. She was telling this to different people who asked her different times. Yeah, so she's living this life where she's telling multiple lies all over the place, right? No way that can come back <laughs> to get you. <laughs> exactly uh, right, but so,
2: But think about how, what amazing news this is for Dale Cliff. Yeah. Uh, because he, uh, if you are an inventor and I know we have some inventors who listen to the show, Scott. So one thing that happens to a lot of inventors is that you come up with an astonishing, revolutionary idea, but you have neither the capital nor the know-how needed to
1: bring this thing to uh, store shelves. And at know? the same time, you want to protect your idea. You want right. to uh, you want to hold on to that. So, you know, you're being cautious, but you also have to be a bit adventurous in that, you know, you have to say, yeah, I've got to throw caution to the wind here with this one because I believe this person and what they say, and you can only go on their credentials and what they tell you, I suppose. A lot more difficult at that time, probably to look into someone's background than it was, you know, than it is now. Right. So our
2: girl Liz comes mm-hmm. to Dale and says, you know, I want to put this brilliant
1: design into production and I can give you what well, might be three million dollars, three million bucks. Now she's saying, you know, that your royalties for this whole thing mm-hmm. uh, would be three million dollars if you, if you give me this design and let me run with it. Right. And uh, of course he would remain, you know, Impartial control of the whole thing, and you know, part of the company as well. However, um, you know, she would be the controlling partner of this whole thing, and uh, of course, she's going to stand to make a lot more money because she's going to risk everything. Apparently, right? That's her. That's going to be her role.
2: Right. Yeah. So he's essentially being offered a deal
1: to sell the rights to the car. Exactly right now, and and you know, of course, also the promise that your name will be on the vehicle. It's going to be called the Dale. That's going to be the name of the car. So Ooh, That's a tough one to that, walk through. That road. is a tempting, tempting <laughs> offer for any inventor, you know, to say, like, well, of course, you're going to name the vehicle after me. How cool would that be, by the way? So let's fast forward to All August. Right. All right. So August of 1974. And uh, the company is finally formed. It's called the uh, – and Liz Carmichael sets this up. She calls it the 20th Century Motor Car Company, which – uh maybe a little bit familiar to readers of um Ayn Rand right yeah right from uh Ayn Rand's famous novel Atlas Shrugged That's right and it was uh, the title was just a little bit different it was it was the 20th century motor company in the book now, if you again, this one is the 20th Century Motor Car Corporation, so very very similar. Right, I could see where a lot of people would be uh, would be confused with this. Now, again, this is set up in August of 1974 by Liz Carmichael, mm-hmm. and it was supposed to be the uh, the company that would carry the the flagship Dale vehicle. You know, this prototype three wheel. Two-seater sports car that was designed by Dale Clift, you know, it was supposed to be, uh, the greatest thing since sliced bread. It was, it was a very futuristic vehicle. They had uh-huh. everything laid out, it, you know, how it was going to be powered, uh, what the shell sure. was going to be made of, what the, the specs, the glass was going to be made of. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Uh, it was supposed to be powered by an 850cc air-cooled engine. And it claimed that it would have, uh, it would get seventy miles per gallon. Right, but still go eighty-five. Still go eighty-five miles per hour. That's right. And so, you know, with this, this great fuel economy, uh, the expected price for this, Ben. Here we go. Two thousand dollars in nineteen seventy-four. That's U.S. dollars. Two thousand dollars, which you know, I guess when you're when you're looking at. Um, you know, 1974 dollars and at the time, you know, for what a car cost and with the fuel prices and all that, mm-hmm. this was a very attractive package, right? Do you have the, uh, the numbers for I, the modern day? I'm glad you asked Ben because I do. I, I've, uh, I've done my little, uh, you know, inflation calculator thing that I like to do with these often. And, um, I've got something that i more of a question really than anything. Okay. Now I did the, uh, the calculation. Now $2,000 in 1974 is equal in 2014 to $9,524.58. So still a cheap vehicle. Yeah.
2: It's and to, new and under $10,000. To buy a brand new right. vehicle
1: like that. And we're, I mean, this this reminds me of the Elio in some way. But <laughs> I hate to say it and we have, along with the story, but it does.
0: If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a papertarian Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com/paperarian.
3: Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry.
0: As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need
1: to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Now, here's something that I want to want to point out. I went to a, a site called The Cost of Living, TheCostOfLiving.com, yeah, and I looked up what the average price of a car was in 1974. And the average price in 70, 1974 was $3,750. So this vehicle is coming in way under the average price. Yeah. Nearly half. Almost no, half. Almost half. Almost half of it. But then I was thinking, okay, that the equivalent today, if, if you just go by inflation. So I, I did that number, the 3750 into $2,014. And yeah. try to follow me here. I'm following. I, I did the equivalent. And the equivalent is $17,858.60. Versus under 10000 yeah.
2: For, yeah, for the uh, for the modern day price of the Dale.
1: Exactly. That's right. Now, but but my the point that I want to get at with this is now if you just go by straight inflation. Now, the average cost of the car in 1974 was thirty seven fifty. If you take that number to today, it's seventeen thousand eight hundred and fifty eight. Do you remember just not long ago when we talked about the average price of a new car? You remember what that number was? Oh, yeah, it's in the 30s. $31,252. Mm-hmm. So what happened? Something happened. What happened that if we had just gone by, you know, from straight inflation, it should be, I mean, if, if this were to play out equally, right, right. I guess, 17858 versus 31252 I think that, you know, it has to do with a lot of the... Added federal safety regulation. I was exactly going to say that. And the uh I guess the exotic materials that they build cars out of, you know, sometimes these days. And the rate of inflation is not itself constant. Anyways, that just gives you a little something to think about. And I thought it was interesting along the way that, you know I guess apples to apples, the price of a new sedan should be seventeen thousand eight instead of thirty one two. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Uh, But if you really want to see those numbers in a way that, uh, or that rate of growth in a way that can hit home for a lot of our listeners, mm-hmm. especially some of our younger listeners, check the cost of college back in
1: 1974. Oh my gosh, these these adjust things, that for inflation. These will drive you insane if you go <laughs> back and you look at you look at some of the numbers. So if you want to go to thecostofliving dot com and you can find yeah. some information there, and if you pair that up with an inflation calculator. That's where you'll start to get mad. I mean, mad.
2: make yourself a stiff drink, honestly, if you drink before <laughs> you read some of this stuff. Do but,
1: something. Try to relax.
2: But here we are, back in 1974 in August. And, Scott, this feels cinematic, some of the stuff that's going on. Yeah, right? some big claims. Right, right, right. So uh, Liz Carmichael immediately... Gret gets together a sales team, uh, they start producing vehicles in, uh, Deering Avenue, or excuse me, on Deering Avenue in Canoga Park, uh, they've got an office in Encino, and she famously says, look, we're
1: all going to be fabulously wealthy, or we'll go to jail. Ah, very prophetic, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, as we'll find out, and I'm sure that you know where this is going now, but there's still another twist. But before we go on, Scott, I like to pause for a moment with that cliffhanger prophetic statement. So we were we were talking here about the Dale, right? Yes. And uh, and we were just getting to some of these big claims, I guess that uh, that Liz Carmichael was making about right. this vehicle, right? Yeah. Excellent mileage. Yeah. Great performance, speed. Exactly. And she has a a six page full color brochure printed up, which showcases. All of the things that you know, the Dale is supposedly going to do, the 70-mile-per-gallon Dale. Dollar for dollar, the best car ever built. Yep, the most exciting new car of the century, the first space-age automobile. Designed and built like it's ready to be driven to the moon. The most exciting idea that ever happened to personal transportation. The (laughs) eyes of the world are on the amazing new Dale. It's a masterpiece in automotive design and engineering, a whole new standard of performance, economy, and safety available in no other car in the world today so these bold bold statements yeah you know they come from this brochure and these brochures by the way are still out there you can you can find one if you know a collector I would guess um, so uh, difficult to find but anyways
2: so they also claim the the car' structure itself is everything but bulletproof yeah, yeah. Uh, so <laughs> They said that the uh, shell of the Dale was made of a quote rocket structural resin, whatever that means.
1: Ah, uh, well, that goes back to her. You know, she's the widow of a NASA structural engineer. Ben. Oh, that's right. I'm sure it was her uh, yeah. husband,
2: her former husband's secret invention. Uh, it will absorb over four times the impact of a Cadillac without serious damage, uh, and the the windows were made of something called rigidex.
1: Yeah, yeah, which is uh I've never heard of rigidex, but it's 70 times the impact resistance of safety glass. So only the force of a bullet ben could penetrate that. Yeah. That's according to her. And so uh additionally
2: it had a printed circuit dashboard, so <laughs> I'm laughing about this one. Yeah, okay. Just walk me through this and make sure you got this correct. Okay. Yep. Okay. So um so it had a printed circuit Dashboard with plug-in accessories,
1: which is uh, which is claimed to to make it um, easier to operate, easier to work on. You know, things things won't go wrong. It's like a solid state thing, right? I mean, yeah. It's, so, it's, like
2: your radio, your heater, your AC goes out, you can un you can just
1: pull it out, pull it out, plug a new one in, right? Or repair it and then put it back in. Which and, is what Tesla is doing with batteries well, today. Yeah, but the idea behind this was that the vehicle had no wires, and yeah. there's a flaw in this idea because you know all the headlights you know any other any other accessory be, beyond what's right in the dash can't be yeah. plugged into a circuit board like that it sounds like at best there's a legalistic definition I mean, of wiring did it have an electric starter because if it did it has wires right. know, i mean there's just no way unless the entire vehicle was a printed circuit board there's no way that it had. It was a wireless vehicle. Maybe that. Maybe it had the wires replaced by rigidex. Yeah, and and then the <laughs> maybe, but and then the the uh, you know everything. I mean, it claimed it had air conditioning. It had you know a heater and everything. It had all yeah. the all the features, right? The engine that they claimed it had, and the warranty is pretty interesting as well because they claimed it was powered by a forty horsepower, eight hundred and fifty cc horizontally opposed twin engine uh, from a BMW motorcycle. And of course, we mentioned the 85 mile per hour top speed already, but it came with you know quite a decent warranty, really, for the time. Yeah, fifteen months, fifteen thousand F- yeah, miles. Exactly. And if you wanted to pay an additional one hundred dollars, Ben, of course, if you wanted to do, to up your game a little bit, you could uh, for another hundred bucks, you could double that warranty to thirty months and thirty thousand miles, just for a hundred bucks. Who wouldn't do that, right? Uh, uh Only a fool. Only a fool. That's right. And they actually went so far as to uh, to put a mock-up on display at the 20th Century office in Encino. I think it was Encino, right? Yeah. And uh, they put stanchions all around the vehicle, so you couldn't get really too close to it to take a good close-up look at the vehicle.
2: Right. And yeah. there's, there's a reason for that. Yeah. <laughs> because it wasn't quite what the production model was supposed to be well
1: they they didn't say that right up front though they said this is a mock-up so this is you know what the car will be uh this is representative of the vehicle right now one of the things that stood out to anybody who looked at this vehicle ben it featured front wheels nailed to a 4x4 that served as the front axle
2: yeah but that wasn't the only car display they had they also did have a prototype
1: ben did you hear me I'm I said mad. I said the wheels were nailed to a four by four. that was supposed to be the front axle of their mock-up vehicle. Yeah, but they said mock-up. Okay, all right. So, you, okay, good point taken. Let's move on to the prototype, like you want to. I, I <laughs> seem I want to dwell on this just a little bit more, okay, but that's can fine. Okay, we dwell some more. Well, okay. How about this? What they ran that prototype that you're talking about? They they ran it and it ran so poorly <laughs> that they had to go back to the original Dale Clift mock up you know the the one that was covered in naugahyde yeah his commuter his yeah, commuter car they showed him a vehicle that wasn't even the dale for the promotional video of this thing because they couldn't get the dale prototype to actually work all that well it ran but it ran very very poorly yeah so you know th- this is just another thing where you know and and in this promotional video or in this promotional material i guess they're claiming that they have 33 million dollars invested in this thing already yeah. Does that sound like a couple of vehicles that have $33 million invested already? In, not in 1975?
2: Re- yeah, not really because that's a, a lot of money, especially in that time. Well, in
1: 1975, $33 million was a lot of scratch. I mean, now you can barely retire on that, but, uh, you know, that's the way it was back then. I should have done the conversion for that.
2: Oh, no, wait, we, uh, I don't know if I could take it emotionally.
1: <laughs> so anyway, so, yeah. so all this is going on, right? There's the mock-up, there's the prototype, neither right. of which really run. The mock-up, no way. The prototype runs roughly. They went back to the Dale Cliff design for the promotional video. And then she claims that she has 100 employees working in a 150,000 square foot facility in Burbank, Burbank, California. Um, and the projections called for astronomical number of cars being built each year, right? Right. 88,000 cars were supposed to be sold during the first year of production, and then after that, 250,000 vehicles were supposed to be built um, for the second year at 100 dealerships and 210 distributors all over the country, at least, if not all over the world. I'm not sure if it went worldwide or not. Onward and upward, buddy. But, but she's selling dealerships, and and she's also selling uh, distributorships to people ahead of time, which... I don't know. Other people have done that. Preston Tucker did that. Preston Tucker has done that, and that comes up later, as we'll find out. But yep. um, she's selling a lot of stuff that uh, you know is, is right now, as we call it, vaporware.
2: Yes. And let's go ahead and add add something here because there's a little bit of trouble in paradise between Dale and Liz. This is a um, this is a sidebar that comes from an interview with uh, the author Richard Smith that okay. we mentioned earlier. So this interview is courtesy of the folks at ThreeWheelers.com, and they had, uh, they had a question here where they said, did Dale have any concerns about some of the claims about uh, how this vehicle would perform or be made? Mm-hmm. And Richard says, uh, you know, I would talk to Dale about some of the concerns he had with what Liz was telling him, and anyone who would listen, Dale at this time was so supportive of the project, it was difficult to approach him with the reality that some of the claims for the Dale might not stand, Dale finally put his foot down when Liz claimed seventy miles to the gallon from this time forward with this
1: claim and others, Dale began to put two and two together Ah so now he's starting to uh, starting to wisen up, but right at first he's completely on board he's and, on board and yeah. at this point in the story, Ben at this point because now we'll find out that you know later there's a there's a little sure. bit of a rift between the two of them. Yeah. Uh, but, but right now at this point, he's still on board. Now you said that, and, and okay, you did mention the 70 mile per hour thing, or 70 miles per gallon thing. Oh yeah. yeah. Okay. So maybe he's already having some doubts, but he's still backing, he's still backing the company and saying that, yeah, we're going to go forward with this idea. It's right? amazing to see a dream made reality. Man. Yeah. Well, the problem was that, uh, they're starting to be investigated as well. Now, um, there's a, a cease and desist order that's filed by the, the California, corporation commission, um, which I guess um, was supposed to prohibit the company from continuing to sell stock in the corporation at that point. This is in September of 1974, I believe.
2: Oh, can I do the quote? Sure. This is from Liz Carmichael, who remained unrepentant. Mm -hmm. I don't want to sound like an egomaniac, but I am a genius, she told the Associated Press. I believe
1: 100% that this car will revolutionize the industry. <laughs> All right, you know, and just after she made that statement, okay? So she's making this this bold statement, you know, after the cease and desist order is being levied upon the uh, the 20th century century business, you know, overall the dale, uh, you know, yeah. falling under that umbrella. Um we find out that um well, car driver sends out a uh, a reporter and this pretty much uncovers this whole thing as a scam. And so, here, here's the way it goes down. And I want to read this paragraph because yeah, this is pretty interesting. Now, this is toward the end of, uh, I believe it's toward the end of 1974 when this happens, or ni- is it 1975? Um, maybe early 1975. It says, car and driver dispatched photographer Mike Salisbury to see Carmichael at her plant in person. So he's headed out to the plant to take a photograph and, and get the story for Car and Driver magazine, right? A yellow egg-like car, which was the Dale, was parked in a corner. And so this is you know the either the mock up or the um or the prototype I'm not sure which. It says when when he went to the vehicle there was no gas pedal or steering wheel in the vehicle. So it sounds to me like it's maybe the mock up. Um ringed around the car when he arrived were a couple of guys wearing Clark Kent glasses and scribbling on on clipboards. Salisbury was convinced that they were performing a pantomime for his benefit. So this is a ruse right at the right from the the onset, you know. Yeah. They got people that are supposedly um I don't know, Ben scientists that are doing, you know, making scientific evaluations of the vehicle, and uh, well, um, they're wearing glasses. They're wearing glasses and lab coats, I'm sure. Yeah. Uh, but they're definitely intended to give uh, this Car and Driver reporter the idea that, yeah, there are people working on this car all the time, and they're very right. important. On they're, the off chance he's a moron. Yeah. So very, very studious. What's the rest of this? Well, as soon as as soon as they walked away from the vehicle, you know, because they had they were done with their clipboards apparently at that point. Uh, as soon as they walked away. He opened the engine compartment and found that there was a Briggs and Stratton lawnmower engine inside. And it didn't take much to realize that the whole thing was a scam. He said, you know, but, but the best was yet to come.
2: And I think if you're okay with it, Scott, on that note, let's pause this for part one of our podcast on the Dale car. Now, I mean,
1: as he says, the best is yet to come. Can we break it right here? Yeah. Let's,
2: I don't think listeners are getting tired of it. I hope not. No, I hope not because this is not even the, this is not even the
1: crazy part. Now there's a, there's a a crazy twist coming. I'll tell you that. Yeah.
2: And just to give us a taste of a little something different, I've got some listener mail before we close out. Let's do it. Okay. Scott, Ben W. writes to us from, I'm going to mispronounce this, Samamish, Washington. That's got to be close. I don't know. It sounds like a drunk person trying to say sandwich. I'm probably saying it wrong, Ben, but thanks for writing to us. He does say it's it's uh, east of Seattle. So Ben W. says, Hi, Scott and Ben. Thank you. From yet another Benjamin. You guys do a great show. You've got me a lot more interested in cars. Well, thanks, man. Very good. Uh, ben goes on to say, I'm just finishing up listening to your latest show about putting one-horsepower motors into cars and thought you might enjoy this fun fact. The Seattle Space Needle's rotating ring operates on just a 1.5-horsepower motor. That's incredible. Which was an upgrade from its original 1.1-horsepower motor. No kidding. Yeah, he said, granted, it doesn't move the entire saucer section, just a ring inside the restaurant. However, this ring and the related equipment weigh around 125 tons. But... Apparently, it's so well-balanced that it only takes this
1: tiny motor to keep it moving. That's pretty incredible. It's amazing that it's such a small engine would be able to operate something like that.
2: Right, yeah, and this is a reference. In case anybody missed it, this is a reference to our earlier episode where we talked about whether you could
1: have a one-horsepower car. Hmm. It's really, really interesting. Now, I'm going to take a second look at every you know, rotating restaurants at the tops of buildings that, that I see now. Oh, yeah. There's one I, in Atlanta, right? I, yeah. I always assume that those have just massive engines that are spinning those things or, or giant electric motors, really, that are spinning them. Yeah. I never really thought it would be a one-horsepower motor. I don't. That may be electric. I'm not sure. I'm sure it's electric. I yeah. don't think they're going to continually feed gasoline into that.
2: Was it the Sundial in Atlanta? Is that the name of that it?
1: That may be it. Yeah. Uh, so
2: maybe we should go investigate. We need badges that say, like, car stuff. Official. Yeah, you know, that look like we're FBI or something. Well, Ben, thank you for writing to us with that fascinating fact here. Uh, ben, you also included some Space Needle facts and uh, some opportunities to get more information. So I am going to figure out uh, what kind of engine is running there, in, or what kind of motor, rather, is running there in the Westin. And we are going to head out. We hope that you stay tuned. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, And if you didn't, then continue on to episode two because it is going to get weird. It's going to pay off. Yeah. All right.
0: If you use paper, you're a human. But if you choose paper, you're a paper Someone who lives a paper-based lifestyle because it has a positive impact on the planet. And also because it's the easiest choice you'll make all day. Seriously. In fact, when you choose products that come in paper-based packaging, those fibers can go on to be recycled up to seven times. So why wouldn't you go Papertarian? I'll wait. Learn more at howlifeunfolds.com/paperarian.
3: Get emotional with me, Radhi Devlukia, in my new podcast, A Really Good Cry.
2: Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. In the meantime, check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Visit our website, carstuffshow.com, and send us an email with your own weird car stories or just engine facts. Our address
1: is carstuff@discovery.com.
0: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. Let us know what you think. Send an email to podcast at howstuffworks.com. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more